So yes, my name is Maxwell Staley, and though it is true that I am preparing to graduate from seminary and enter a full vocation of ministry, I am a gerontologist by training. It means I take special interest in what happens to us humans as we age. And something that you may or may not know is that our brains are never really fully formed. Yeah. Brains have this very cool uh, thing called plasticity, and that means that they are always changing according to our environments. What a wonderful thing. You see, depending on the resources that are available to us and any potential threats that are in our area, the brain will adjust so that you are more likely to survive that we, as a species, are more likely to survive. And the science suggests that this is by design, mostly because we all experience this process. And some would argue that we must, not just to survive, but in order to thrive. Like most animals, humans learn how to basically keep ourselves physically alive at an early age. Infants can sniff out their food source. Children fend for themselves without any sort of adult supervision across all sort of contexts. And we all in general know how to avoid fire and pain while seeking and needing heat. Unlike most animals, we take a lot longer to learn the social behaviors that lead to optimal living. And that's where puberty comes in. Our bodies are still changing, and our brains are changing, and our relationships are now changing. We begin to have different values and expectations. We become aware of not only ourselves, but the world around us. We become aware that we are all in some kind of relationship. And for what seems like a lifetime, every day is some new discovery and or crisis. Most sources state that puberty, that is the developmental process of physically transitioning from child to adult, generally begins around the age of 10 and is finished, done, over, between the ages of 16 and 17. That makes sense, right? You know, 18-year-olds are adults. 21-year-olds make responsible choices. 35-year-olds understand all of the nuances of geopolitics in the same way as 80-year-old politicians. Adults always own up to their mistakes. A lot of laughter out there. I wonder if that's perhaps because this doesn't quite line up with our experience. I'm curious if anyone here uh, who has gone through puberty feels like maybe their body is still changing. If there's, I'm wondering if anyone younger than 10 in the room or older than 17 feels like they might still have a changing awareness of certain relationships. Is it possible that we just don't know what we're talking about? That's fascinating to me because Genesis, right, it says that we ate the fruit that gives us knowledge of good and evil. Now, that phrasing is both basic and vague. I mean, does it mean that we know right from wrong, true from false? Do we know everything? 
right? I mean, later in that, that text, God seems pretty concerned that we might. I mean, humans are expelled from paradise lest they become like gods. The Tower of Babel is destroyed with confusion, and Jesus exclusively speaks in clever parables, right? So only the clever will understand. Divinity is so often hidden from us. And yet, here we are. Here we are once again, marking a season of personal penitential reflection in the name and imitation of a marginalized person murdered by state powers in order to be reconciled with God. Now, I don't know about you all, but I was always taught that it was during this time that we're to give up something that we enjoy, chocolate, cartoons, And, and we give these things up, these joys, these simple pleasures, because that either shows God that we're trying to be good, right? Or it reminds ourselves just how much Jesus suffered on the cross so that we might have eternal life. So what I was taught was sort of like, you know, just be glad that you don't have to be crucified, uh, which then translates to, you should love God because God didn't nail you to a cross. Or maybe in some, in some contexts, you might hear, you know, if I make myself suffer enough, or if I'm just obedient enough, I can be righteous, and God will love me more. And I feel like that's kind of where Paul is going. At least that's how he's been frequently interpreted. You know, this idea that suffering builds character. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. There is glory in the struggle. But is that right or wrong? Is suffering good or evil? It is irrelevant, truly. God's first question to humanity is not, why are you naked? Or why did you disobey? Why did you not trust me? God's first question to us is much more powerful and much more profound. Where are you? It was never a matter of doing or not doing, obeying or not obeying. God's concern is always relational. From the very beginning, God's creative work and focus is relational. Phyllis Tribble, the esteemed feminist Old Testament scholar, points out the context for God's creative acts is a divine judgment. Genesis 2.18 says, It's not good that the human should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. The phrase that needs explaining is helper fit for him. In the Old Testament, the word helper is ezer, and it has many usages. It can be a proper name for a male. In some passages, it characterizes deity. In our story that we heard today, it describes the animals and the woman. God is the helper of Israel, and as helper, Yahweh creates and saves. Thus, 
Esser is a relational term. It designates a beneficial relationship, and it pertains to God, people, and animals. By itself, the word does not specify positions within the relationship, and more particularly, it does not imply inferiority. So you see, it's not hard because we disobeyed or let ourselves be tricked by the snake. It's hard because now we know it's hard. Because we feel the hurt of others and we know it. And we run from it. We let our ego get in the way. I wonder what would have happened in our story from Genesis today if Adam, instead of eventually blaming his Ezer God and then blaming his Ezer woman, if Adam had simply said, Ooh, yeah, you know, I did eat the fruit and now I have this feeling inside of me, like maybe I'm not right enough. Um, you know, I know you created me, God, and I know you're good. And I don't understand my new level of awareness. I wonder what would happen if Eve had said, oh, yeah, God, I was having a conversation with the Ezer snake. You know, this other dirt creature living in this place where everything is good. And I decided to eat this fruit. And I knew then that the fruit was good and it was delicious and it gave wisdom. And as my partner's Ezer, it seemed right that I share this food. And now, now that I know that it is possible to be either good or evil, I'm so worried about not being good that I can't seem to resist evil. Let me just have a conversation with you, God. Be my Ezer. Help us understand. Beloved, it was the fear of judgment, vulnerability, and agency that is the fall of humanity. In the same work that I mentioned earlier by Tribble, she points out that humans are indeed judged. Their judgments are commentaries. They simply show how terrible human life has become as it stands between creation and grace. We must read these texts if the human suffering that comes after eating the fruit is a mandate. The suffering that seems to come down on humans from the word of God describes, they do not prescribe, they protest, they do not condone. Whereas in creation, man and woman know harmony and equality in sin, that is by knowing both good and evil, they now know alienation and discord. So suffering is neither good nor evil. It is a fact of life to a certain extent. Right? We really shouldn't worry about it that much as it pertains to our own selves because we will suffer. But do not be afraid. Do not be controlled by a bit or a bridle. Do not be controlled by anxiety. Do not let the other creatures in this world who are dirt and dust just like the rest of us be any kind of bit in your mouth telling you what is real suffering what is righteous or not. We know good from evil. 
We don't need a bit or a bridle. We need guides. We need support. We need loving relationships. That's where Jesus comes in. Rowan Williams, uh, the Catholic scholar, writes that baptism, right, this other thing that we do to be like Jesus, is actually an invitation to suffering. Not personal suffering, community suffering. Because Jesus died for the sins of the world, for the suffering of the world. And if we think that that has already saved us, well, here we are in paradise. So I'm wondering, is this just a matter of perspective, this eternal salvation thing? This freedom from suffering thing? The humans often want to control our suffering. We want to get away with acting however we'd like to. We want to run away from any kind of pain. We want to ignore it. We avoid fire and pain, all while seeking and needing heat. We avoid agency and responsibility while seeking control. And the difference between agency and control, my friend, that's what Jesus shows us in his time of temptation. Jesus shows us that it is possible to survive the hard stuff. It is possible to present our whole naked selves to our holy creator. While well, in his time in the wilderness, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus, it, it was certainly not the only time that Jesus suffered. Right? But in this particular experience, that's what launched him into his ministry. During this temptation in the wilderness where the devil comes up three times, Jesus is successfully navigating a relationship with the devil with God and with the world around him. So is it really about suffering? Is it really about sin? Sin was in the world long before God gave us the laws. Right? So I'm not quite sure that we always read Paul and this concept of sin and suffering correctly. Because when I look at my bank accounts, I realize that I own nothing other than responsibility. I own nothing other than responsibility. I'm willing to bet that's the same for everyone in this room. We own nothing but responsibility. That is our ability to respond to relationships. Our abilities to both ask and answer, where are you? Beloved, that is grace. That is justification. So yes, Lent is an opportunity to get closer to God. But it is not a punishment. Rather, it is a celebration. It is not a mandate or a requirement. Rather, an invitational opportunity to put in good, intentional work to grow, to heal, to bless, and to love. So let us celebrate that we do know good from evil. And God loves us even when we don't understand that. 
it's okay that we don't always understand all that we know because God loves and forgives us. God gives us many, many opportunities to get it right, to try again tomorrow, maybe even try again today. Nicole, I'm so glad you read Psalm 32 for us this morning. Because um, in, that, in that particular psalm, right, the psalmist writes, while I kept silent, it was my bones that were wasting away, but a simple acknowledgement was enough to be set high on the protective mountain to get it all right, to begin anew towards right relationship. Because God loves us despite all of the ways we hide ourselves away from the one who created us, who desires only a vulnerable, authentic relationship with us. Walter Brueggemann suggests that to engage Lent and to be engaged by Lent is to render oneself vulnerable to the reality of who we are as human beings. It is also to open ourselves to the nature of God as Redeemer, the one who will not abide the space that sin has created, and who insists on spanning that abyss with love. May it be so.